You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In light of my recent displays of spirited rebellion, as she put it, and my father's exponentially increasing resentment toward me, my mother thought we might patch up our problems and differences if we all sat down and shared a nice family Thanksgiving dinner together. Just like old times, she says. The three of us are sitting around the dining room table in a stifling, uncomfortable silence. My father shovels cranberry sauce and turkey into his mouth, refusing to speak or to make eye contact with me or my mother, while mom abandoned her attempts at making conversation after my father told her to shut it. Now she just sits in her chair, holding back tears and biting her lower lip as she picks at the stuffing and green beans on her plate. My parents don't appear to be in the holiday spirit. Meanwhile, I'm thankful just to be eating at the table. It's the first time my parents have invited me to join them for a meal since my third day back, when one of the stitches on my face popped and a piece of rotting tissue fell into my mother's homemade gazpacho. Needless to say, Mom hasn't made it since. Fortunately, my stitches seem to be holding fast these days, better than I would have thought after four months, so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for a lot of things more than I would have imagined barely more than a month ago. I'm thankful for my support group. I'm thankful for Rita. I'm thankful for meeting Ray. And I'm thankful my speech is returning. It's still rudimentary, but when your vocabulary has consisted of grunts and screeches that make Leatherface sound like a Rhodes Scholar, anything is an improvement. In addition to I Ida, hi Rita, I've managed to vocalize a few other expressions. Ook eight, you look great. S-E's, yes please. Hank ooh, thank you, and... O-I-L. How do I smell? Coming from a nine-month-old in a high chair with cream corn dripping down his chin, the brief explosions of half-English would probably sound adorable. But coming from a 34-year-old decomposing half-corpse with mashed potatoes and gravy dripping down his chin, well, let's just say it's probably not going to make anyone reach for the video camera. So I keep quiet, and I eat my dinner, and I look around the table, at my disappointed mother and my brooding father, at all of the food and splendor of this silent, oppressive Thanksgiving feast until my gaze falls on the turkey with its blistered skin and its vanishing flesh. The more I stare at it, the more I realize I can relate to it, empathize with it, and it strikes me how much we have in common. True, it's dead and cooked and partially devoured, but is that so different from me? As it slowly consumed, the bones appear bit by bit, the cartilage and ribs revealing themselves as meat is stripped from the skeleton. Eventually it will be nothing but a carcass, and I wonder, am I being destroyed by breathers? Is the process of decomposition gradually consuming me, or am I being consumed by the degradation of having to exist in a world ruled by the living? The longer I stare at the turkey, the more I begin to feel a sort of kinship with it. The more I see it as a metaphor of my current existence, the more I begin to understand why Tom would want to become a vegetarian. Before my father can cut off another slice of breast or tear off a wing, I reach over and grab the turkey by its leg and drag it off the serving platter across the table toward me. Hey, says my father, his mouth filled with stuffing, pieces of it spraying across the table. What the hell do you think you're doing? Intervention, deliverance, redemption. Take your pick. All I know is it feels right. The turkey overturns the gravy boat on its way toward me, dumping its contents onto the tablecloth and into the cranberry sauce. God damn it, yells my father, dropping his knife and fork and reaching for the turkey. Honestly, honey, says my mother, happy just to have some sort of interaction taking place. If you wanted some more, all you had to do was ask. Before my father can grab the other leg, I pull the 16-pound butterball into my lap, knocking my plate aside and off the edge of the table, where it lands on the hardwood and cracks in two, spilling my dinner across the floor. Andy, says my mother, those are my best dinner plates. Give me that turkey, says my father, who gets to his feet and comes around the table with his head thrust out in front of him the way he does whenever he means business. It used to scare the crap out of me when I was a kid. 
but I'm not a kid anymore, and I'm not giving up my turkey. I push back in the chair and stand up, more sure of myself than I've been in months, and cradle the holiday personification of my essence against my stomach with my right arm as I back away toward the cellar door. Just before my father reaches me, he steps in my spilled mashed potatoes and goes down hard, smacking his elbow on the table. Are you all right, dear? asks Mom, who is still sitting in her chair as if this is all perfectly normal. My father doesn't answer. He just gets to his feet and comes after me. I've almost reached the wine cellar door when he catches up and grabs hold of an exposed leg. I don't think he even cares about eating the turkey anymore. He just doesn't want me to have it. Part of me wonders what the hell I expected to accomplish, how I thought this would improve my situation. Another part of me finds this more fun than any recent Thanksgiving I can remember, so I start to laugh. This isn't funny, says my father, trying to pull the turkey away from me, but I've got a firm grip on the other leg with my right hand and I'm not letting go. Over my father's shoulder, I see my mother cleaning up my broken plate as she complains about how we both ruined a perfectly lovely meal. My father and I continue to fight over the turkey, each of us pulling on a leg, skin and meat sliding off in our hands. And I'm reminded of sluffage. During the initial stages of human decay, liquid leaking from enzyme-ravaged cells gets between the layers of skin and loosens them. Sometimes the skin of an entire hand or foot will come off. As the process continues, giant sheets of skin peel away from the body, like the piece of skin that just slipped off off the leg my father is holding. If I hadn't already ruined my appetite for turkey, that definitely did it. An instant later, the leg in my father's hand rips away and he stumbles back, falling into the antique black buffet hutch containing my mother's teacup collection. The hutch topples over and lands with a thunderous crash of wood and broken china cups as I fall to the floor laughing with the turkey in my lap and my mother starts to cry. Just like old times. As S.G. Brown, Scott Brown, wrote the book Breathers, A Zombie's Lament, thank you for joining me, Scott. Sure, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Scott, Tell me the first time you ever came across a zombie in your life, in, in you know, as a kid or something. It would definitely be, I, I believe it had to be fifth or sixth grade, probably sixth grade. So mm-hmm. I was around 11 or 12 years old. It was back when Creature Features was still on, hosted mm-hmm. by Bob Wilkins mm-hmm. every Saturday night. Yeah. And the only way you got to see Night of the Living Dead, because they didn't have videotape VCRs back then, and, and even if they did, you couldn't rent it, was on Creature Features. And that was the first time was seeing that. Of course, it was the it was the edited version. You didn't get to see them actually eating the flesh. You didn't get to see the naked zombie lady, but you did get to experience zombies. And that was my my introduction to zombies. Now, when you saw that movie, how did it make you feel? Did it, did you think it was funny or scary or, or or what? Well, it was scary, but I was watching it with my my two best friends at the time, and mm-hmm. of course, because we all didn't want to let each other know we were scared, we would make jokes during the movie to you know, diffuse the tension and diffuse the fear. Now, I remember when that movie came out and my parents subscribed to uh, Reader's Digest and there was a big essay in Reader's Digest about how this movie was just the absolute worst thing in the world that was indicative of all that was wrong with America. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Times have changed. Times have changed. Zombies are rapidly approaching and probably soon, I think in the next couple of years, going to overtake uh, vampires as our favorite uh, form of supernatural revenant. Uh, Could you talk about, um, as you grew up, did you keep finding zombies more interesting or? or I found zombies, I'm not a, I'm a fan of zombies, but I am not an obsessive fan Mm, of zombies. I have not seen every single zombie movie out there and I have not read every single bit of zombie literature. I tend to pick and choose. I have a bunch in my queue on Netflix that I need to catch up on because people keep asking me, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? So <laughs> I need to watch them. But no, I would just, I saw the you know, the Romero trilogy when mm-hmm. it was still a trilogy before it, it became a quartet and now a quintet. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I saw uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie back in 1978. That was actually a double feature with Scanners. That was great to see as a 14-year-old. Boy, Scanners and Zombie. <laughs> I, I, I had to see Scanners like three times before I could sit through the whole thing, I have to admit. Yeah, that was fun. So I, I picked and choose, and I, I hadn't really read. I read a little bit of zombie fiction, but I hadn't really read much. Uh, most of it was, was the movies that I'd seen. And so I enjoyed the movies, but I didn't. Zombies have not always been a constant running theme in my life, no. Okay. Now, so here you are. You're living in Santa Cruz. What makes you decide to write? A, a, how did you come about the, this novel? Because it has a very interesting prose style. The first-person narrator is really has a, has a very uh, unique voice. Talk about creating that voice. And, and did the voice come before the story, or did the story come with the voice? I think the voice... The voice came with the story, mm -hmm. I'm going to say. It's probably, I hadn't really thought about it before. Mm -hmm. That's my you know, initial reaction is that it came with it. I had written three novels before this, and uh -huh. they were all straight supernatural horror uh, inspired by Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Peter Straub, Clive Barker, Robert McCammon, F. Paul Wilson, etc. Boy, that's the holy trinity right there, and then some. <laughs> <laughs> and I reached a point where my, my third novel that I'd written was first person, mm -hmm. and the other two were third-person omniscient, and I enjoyed the first-person narration, and I'd written some short stories like that. But I got tired of writing the straight supernatural horror, and I, I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And then I read Lullaby mm -hmm. by Chuck Palahniuk, mm -hmm. and it was a dark comedy with a horror edge to it. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen that done before, especially written, and his was the first person, and I enjoyed the style, and I'd written some short stories that, that were at least cousins of the way he was writing. And I said, well, I have a short story about zombies that I'd written called The Zombies Lament, 2,000 words, and told in first person. I want to see if I can make this work, and I think I can. So I set about turning this 2,000-word short story into an 82,000-word novel by adding a few more words. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun to write, and I'd never had as much fun writing a novel as I'd had writing this book. Uh, it was a lot of fun to research. It was a lot of fun just to let the characters develop on the pages, to discover the story as I wrote it. And that's that's how I changed. So my, my style of writing changed to the point where I, I like doing the first person with the the narrative, the the perspective of of society, culture, whatever you want to want to say, and having that as part of the story moving along with, with uh, the sort of supernatural aspect. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned research. Now, research isn't the first word that comes to mind when people see a zombie novel. But <laughs> So tell us about some of your research. I, I always start with stiff, the curious mm -hmm. lives of human cadavers, which I actually acknowledge uh, in, in mm -hmm. my acknowledgments in the back. I acknowledge Mary Roach. I didn't have to get permission to use what I used because it was paraphrased, uh, I, I had checked to make sure, but I didn't feel right not at, at least giving some kudos to it because it allowed me to to have a lot of visceral attributes to the world I created by giving me what happens to car bodies when they de decompose, how they're used when they're donated to science, and gave me all this sort of material that I could use but turn it into how zombies are, are used as opposed to how the deceased are used to help in medical science. Well, now, that, let's talk a little bit about the world that we encounter at the beginning of this book. Um, Andy is in a, a, he's in a meeting for Undead Anonymous. So tell, explain to us how, what the state of the world is. Is this, is this our world or is this 
It's our world. Okay. It's our world, and it's it's present day. And what I've done is I've created sort of, you know, if you want to call it an alternate reality, mm-hmm. I it, there's the only thing different is that zombies exist in it, and they've mm-hmm. existed for. I, I use that the first accounts go back to the Civil War, mm-hmm. that there were some zombies. And zombies existed back during the Depression. They got in bread lines and, and, and took you know, food and, and handouts from the unemployed, which didn't endear them to everybody. They were around during World War II. They were used as, as objects of discrimination before and after. All the other different minorities have been used. But now they are the lowest form of 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 life and they're allowed to exist within certain rules they have to follow certain commandments and they have no rights and and typically the the living or breathers treat them as second class citizens Mm -hmm. citizens they're abhorred they're dismembered they're thrown into fires they're used for medical experiments so they don't have any sort of not only do they not have any rights they, they don't have any any redeeming qualities. They're not considered humans. And so they're treated with absolute, absolutely no respect. Um, but they are allowed to exist up to a certain point. Yeah, they have no right to life uh, since they aren't alive anymore. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I love this, this uh, the, the perceptions of this world because that you get out of this book because of the, the uh, perspective of your narrator. He, he's a zombie and he's... he's able to think but he's a little bit at least at the beginning of the book he's a little bit of the uh the uh diving bell and uh and the butterfly uh he he can't really communicate outward much can he no no his vocal cords were so badly damaged in the accident that in order to communicate with anybody he has to wear a dry erase board around his his neck and and write on that to get his thoughts across he's the quintessential zombie and most of the other zombies in the the book you know, they, they either killed themselves, they died of a heart attack, they were mugged, something happened, they died in a car accident, but they're still able to talk, they still walk normal, and but he has his left shoulder shattered, his left ankle has been destroyed, and so he's your quintessential shambling, dragging what from behind him, grunting and moaning zombie. So he has a, a sign on the back of him that pretty much says, abuse me on him. <laughs> And, and people are allowed to do this. It's really fascinating to to read this book because on one hand we're we're laughing at some of these scenes where he were he's having you know rotten food thrown at him and, and pretty much every disgusting substance that you can imagine thrown at anybody gets thrown at this poor character during the course of this novel. Uh, did you do a lot of rotten food throwing yourself just to, to, <laughs> to check on, on uh, uh, trajectories, splatter patterns, that kind of thing? No, I didn't. I I, I tried to just be as I tried to be an equal opportunity employer, not only to the the junk food, but also to the healthy food, because we, you know, we do live in Santa Cruz and we mm-hmm. have a lot of health food stores. So I had I couldn't just have you know round table pizza and Burger King and Kentucky Fried Chicken and and double lattes from Starbucks thrown at him. I had to have some you know some tofu and some Jamba juices and you know smoothies and other things that were actually healthy thrown at him as well. Uh, the the setting of Santa Cruz for this novel is is proves to be pretty ideal, and, and part of that's just because of the way uh, Santa Cruz is physically located. It's kind of easy to isolate. You know, in in the event of a, a real zombie attack, we will be able to kind of cut off at Highway One and Highway Seventeen, and you know, keep the zombies out if they decide to go on a rampage. Um, it, could you talk about using Santa Cruz it, it, when you were writing the novel? Did 
parts of Santa Cruz inspire parts of the plot? I'm not really sure if parts of Santa Cruz specifically inspired parts. And, and I think I chose Santa Cruz to be the location, not necessarily because I lived here, but it was just, it seemed the right fit for some reason. Mm. You know, having it in a city didn't work. Having it in some remote location I'd never been to didn't work. I liked having the familiarity with Santa mm. Cruz. And it also made, it made research of the locations very easy for me. I could go to the cemeteries and I could, I could walk down the street. And actually, where Andy lives is pretty much where I live. <laughs> it's slightly, you know, I, I moved... I, I played a little bit with geography, mm-hmm. but he pretty much lives right by the Rodeo Gulch Creek, you know, and, and 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 that's where he goes through to head down into Soquel Village, past the Pet Pals, and what used to be the uh, the, the mortuary that had closed up, but now I think it's a Sutter Health Clinic or something. One of the things you do really well in this book is I was talking about the prose. There's there's a certain phrase you do you use repeatedly in this book, or, or so, certain kind of joke setup, which is if you've never you pro dot 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 you probably wouldn't understand. See if you can find one of the better examples of that, and then talk about using that because it's very very funny. I, it, you have this great dry sense of humor, and I, I love this kind of. Uh, this it's this is a literally deadpan humor, isn't it? I guess definitely. Well, I I found one, and actually I think I used I think I may have used I came up with this expression at some point as I was going along. Mm-hmm. I don't think I came up with it right away, and as I came up with it, I found other places to use it, and I think I actually went back and found places where I could use it earlier because I had mm-hmm. several instances of it later in the novel, and thought, well, introducing it at this point doesn't make sense. Let's see if I can find some places early on mm-hmm. where I can edit this and have it come up and. And this is one of the, I don't know if you would need to have the setup for this, but he's, he's in the dumpster hiding from a bunch of, of uh, fraternity pledges who are out mm-hmm. trying to dismember a, a, a zombie, which they are want to do and they can get away with. And he's covered with some sort of disgusting industrial waste and waiting, hopefully, to get out of there without being dismembered. So this is... Oh, and he's also being stabbed, actually, with a sharpened piece of rebar. So he says, he's explaining how it feels to, to, to experience this. He says, while there's no pain, the sensation isn't pleasant. It's more invasive than uncomfortable, with a hint of humiliation. If you've never been in a dumpster coated with industrial waste while someone stabs you with a piece of sharpened rebar, then you probably wouldn't understand. This is a really great uh, phrase, and and I, I think this uh, it, it's an interesting style of humor because you're because as I say you you uh, describe things uh, so dead in a deadpan manner. Um, as you uh, explored the zombie character and novel, and this is uh, one of the things that's interesting. This zombie has a has a really definite character arc, and it kind of catches you by surprise. Could you talk about this? Did the character arc that you ca- came up with catch you by surprise? It did actually. To to an extent, mm-hmm. when when I used to write, I think I plotted things out a little bit more, but I, I've mm-hmm. gotten to the point where I make it up as I go. Mm-hmm. Some people call it organic writing, whatever. I don't, I don't outline. I have a general idea. I know where I'm starting. I have a general idea of where I might end up, mm-hmm. and I have some idea of, of where I'm going to go to get there, but I like discovering the story as I write it because that allows it to, to really move without being to move in the direction that it wants to go without being sort of tied down by this idea of where I think it should go. Mm-hmm. And and I actually reached a point in Breathers where I wasn't happy with where it was going. I, it seemed sort of dull. It, 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 it wasn't working. And then I came up with 
if you're familiar with it, the, the scene where he's in the SPCA and all of a sudden the media gets involved. And I hadn't planned on having that at all. And when I had that happen, that really sort of, that, that affected his arc a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but even before that, I had to go back in and, and create a little bit more of an arc for him for taking control of his situation a little bit earlier than he did because it felt like he was sort of a victim of everything for too long. And I needed to to go back and and definitely work on that rather than just allow him to exist the way I had originally written out his his arc, so to speak. One of the things I think that's that's is interesting in this is this um, this is really a novel about taking control of your life and taking responsibility for yourself, isn't it? Even though it's kind of inverted in many ways. Well, the one of the characters in the book. Uh, Helen, who is the moderator of Undead Anonymous, always throws out these little phrases for them. And uh, I, I'm blanking on it right now. You, it had to do with your, your question. But uh, definitely one of the things that they do is she, she asks them to find their purpose. Mm. And that, if someone were to ask me, well, what is the driving force behind the book? And it's the zombies trying to find their purpose in a society in which they don't have a purpose. And that's the challenge. And this is too. It's a pretty strong statement about uh, prejudice. And what, what's interesting is the way that, in the end, you actually turn it back. I mean, we we get all these parallels. You know, zombies have you know are, have need a, a worse life than gay people, and and all you know we get a kind of all the ticks of all the various you know eras of racial and uh, human prejudice just been peeled away. And this is the the last one. I think it's a really fascinating study of that. Did you let, look at the, the history of, the, of how we've mistreated one another through the ages? I use it to some extent. When mm-hmm. I actually started out writing it, even though, even though the, what I said, the driving force is to find your purpose, my original desire when I wrote this was simply I wanted to write a book with a zombie as a main character and create empathy for a zombie because I hadn't seen that done before and that was a challenge mm-hmm. to me. So that if and when the zombie gave in to his archetypal Hollywood urges to consume human flesh, the reader would be right there with him saying, yes, yes, I'm, 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 I'm there with you and I'm not going to, I'm not going to go, you know, go away. I'm, I'm, I'm behind you all the way on this. The discrimination aspect actually all developed as part of the plot. It wasn't something that I sat down and say, okay, well, I'm going to write a, a social satire about discrimination and, and all of the the history of it, but it naturally sort of evolved out of the storytelling and needed to at least have a place in there. I didn't want to necessarily pound people over the head with it, but I didn't want to ignore it either. So I wanted to make sure that I did a little bit of of you know it doesn't make it doesn't take much research to go back and say okay well you know you had the, the African Americans and you had women and you had the Japanese in the internment camps and you had the gays and you had the the, the you know, the Muslims now. So it's pretty easy to go back at the last 100 or 150 years and, and see those who were discriminated against. One of the things that this book is really strong on and is really important in superna- any kind of supernatural work is the rules <laughs> as to how the supernatural aspect works. Could you talk about how you de- developed your, your rules? And, and because they're, they're very strong and it seems uh, it's quite realistic seeming and, and that that's unusual in this kind of book it's gritty and low-key well I definitely took some some liberties with physiology mm. of the zombies you know if you can't technically breathe can you technically speak I don't know I so <laughs> probably not uh, and and you know and and there's a lot of 
like I said, aspects that, that I sort of used to make things work for my book. But in terms of the mythology, I created, at least I felt like I created a lot of new mythology mm-hmm. for my book that was not your standard zombie stuff because these were sentient zombies and most mm-hmm. zombies are not sentient. They still had all their memories of their past life. They still had all the control of all their their you know, their, their, their muscles and, and their movements, except for when they were injured. And so I just wanted to create that sort of physical aspect where they were deteriorating, but more slowly if you were embalmed prior to reanimating. So I, I, I sort of set up those rules within the structure of it. When you reanimate, the process of decomposition slows down. If you reanimate after you've been embalmed, it slows down to a crawl so that I don't have all my characters just, you know, decomposing. And Because in four months, you would have decomposed as a regular <laughs> corpse. I'm like, well, that's not going to work for, uh-huh. for the story if my main character is going to be completely decomposed. So I needed to make sure that I set up some sort of rules that allowed him and explained how he could continue to, to actually exist without his body falling apart and the flesh falling off of his bones. Now, uh, the core for really any kind of good novel is characters we like and can care about. And, and that's, the, I think, the real strength of this book for me. And I love your characters because they're also kind of like lower middle class people. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting milieu that's, I think, horror itself, the horror genre tends to explore. And I think you explore uh, uh, better than most horror writers in that, in that regard. I had a lot of fun with these characters. And again, people ask me where I came up with the names or where they model after somebody. Not really. I think I think a lot of authors in their first two or three novels, not all no- authors, obviously, but your main character is a lot like you. And, and that can get in the way because your other characters become more interesting. Because <laughs> 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 you're trying to make your character too much like you and, and, you know, you need to get away from that. I don't think Andy is necessarily like me. I'm sure there are aspects of Andy that are me, but there are aspects of, of other the characters. I think I'm in each of these characters to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, and I speak through all of them. But, you know, Jerry, uh, Jerry's one of my favorite characters in the book, and, and he says dude all the time, and dude is my favorite word. <laughs> and so it's fun to have him be able to say that. And, and I had a lot of fun with Rita. I thought she was a good, strong character in the book as well. Mm-hmm. So creating the characters in here, again, it, I pretty much let them figure out how they wanted to be and how they wanted to act and react. And and I might get up to a situation and one of them would react a certain way and I'd say, you know, that's not the way you would do it, but one of the other characters would. So I would have to rewrite the scene with the other character in there because it, it wasn't making sense. So I needed to stay true to to what the characters were and and the paths that they were taking through the, the storytelling. Now, one of the things you do quite nicely, when you have a novel like this, you, you really need to keep upping the ante. Um, you have to start us out, you know, they're in the basement at first, and you don't want them to stay there all the whole way. So could you talk about, like, the, the way you were up the ante? And I, and I really love, uh, uh, you know, uh, without giving away too much of the plot, I really love the way you bring in the media and the way this, this whole cause happens, you know, ravels and unravels, as it were. Well, that was definitely that that. I'm not going to say scene, that that series of chapters mm-hmm. where Andy ends up in the SPCA. And, and actually what happens is is the zombies are trying to find their purpose and they're, they go out and they all create acts of civil disobedience, which obviously when you create an act of civil disobedience as a zombie, 
you end up at the SPCA because the animal control comes and picks you up and you end up there. Well, well, Andy ends up at the SPCA and he's there for a longer period of time for, for reasons that you can read the book to find out because I don't want to give too many spoilers. But that whole series where he's at the SPCA really drove the book mm-hmm. through the last third of the book. I think, it, I think it takes place around page 200 or so. I'd have to look. But I was at that point. It hadn't. I didn't have that, and so that was up in the ante. But it was something I had to come to. It wasn't something that I knew was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And and everything that happened after that it was easy. It was almost easy to find the escalation as it went along through to the end of the book to make that work. And then you know prior to that, Andy's getting involved and becoming a little bit more proactive in his life, and and some of the other things that happened to them as they're starting to discover some some changes in them that was all it just all sort of like i said it flowed naturally from from the the story that i wanted to tell i I guess we shouldn't be surprised that a novel about zombies in love it would be organic (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) you you make this story seem real and gritty with a lot of really interesting details um for example our did you have to do a lot of research on wine? You you certainly know enough about it. I, and I'm not a wine drinker. I mm. I well, I'm a beer. I'm more of a beer connoisseur and a wine drinker. I couldn't tell you the difference between a twenty dollar bottle of wine and a hundred dollar bottle of wine. How it tasted. I and I don't know everything to do with it. I I did research on on the internet. I just found different types of wine. I went to I think it was a website called the Wine Cask and just found. I kept trying to find different sounding wines so that he wouldn't keep repeating and, and using a Cabernet every time. You know, I, I wanted to use a Pinot Noir here, and I wanted to use a Cab here, and a Merlot there, and a Syrah there. So I wanted to make sure that he had a, a nice mix of it. And of course, you know, he's a red wine drinker, so the white wines to him are just sort of like mouthwash, so he uses them to gargle with. And, and the reason he's drinking all this wine is because he lives in his parents' wine cellar, and he's not necessarily supposed to be consuming it all, which also becomes a... Uh, a point of concern. Um, so tell me what else you had to research in this book beyond uh, Mary Roach and wine. <laughs> well, uh, I, I did do some research on some of the local cemeteries, but in terms of some details that were thrown there, and actually mm-hmm. the SoCal Cemetery, the, the, a lot of the, the descriptions that I give there, those are actual headstones that are there. Oh, really? Yeah, they're, they're actual headstones that, that are in the, the, the cemetery. One of the other things that I researched was was makeup and cosmetics and how to apply them, because <laughs> there's, so. there's, this, there's a scene in the book where where Andy's putting on some makeup to try to hide some of his his less than glamorous features because he's falling for one of the female zombies, Rita, and so there's a scene where he's he's having makeup and putting makeup on and his mother is actually helping him do this and I wanted to be able to have some some actual detail there that that made sense so it's fun for me to have that even just simple little things like there's a scene where a car comes around a reverse curve Mm. and and runs into somebody and i could have just said it was coming around a curve but for some reason the reverse curve and i think there actually is a reverse curve on soco old uh, san jose road old san jose road and so i wanted i like that little even that little detail to me made a difference than just throwing out a simple coming around the corner. Now, uh, this is in many ways a, a romance novel, too. And so t- 
tell us about writing a, a novel of romance when where neither one of the characters is living. <laughs> some challenging at moments there. Uh, there. There is to some extent. It, it's there, the romance gradually builds up and really doesn't start to take effect until about halfway through the book. I don't think there are some hints of it before, and you actually you can see that 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 Andy is taking a little bit of a shine to to Rita. But of course he has the concerns because his wife died just two months ago in the same car crash in which he had died and reanimated from. So he's got a little bit of a dilemma and he's, he's trying to mourn his wife, but obviously he has these feelings for Rita. So as we went along, that was actually one of the other things that I put in there is I think the very first haiku that I wrote in here was the haiku that Andy writes for, for Rita which uh, which I, I think I title a zombie in love and and if I can remember off the top of my head it's um, lips colored crimson dead flesh like alabaster my lifeless heart pounds and so that was the, the haiku that he wrote for her and it's actually inspired by a haiku that I, I remember reading in in a Stephen King novel called it where uh, one of the characters in there as a as a young little boy writes a, a haiku for for this girl that that he has a, a fan, has taken a fancy to, but I hadn't written any other haikus in there, and that that love haiku was the first one that I'd written that got me to go back and, and add in some additional haiku because I thought it was kind of a nice touch to have him have write, been writing haiku other than just this one time. There was, mm-hmm. didn't seem any explanation for him to write a haiku if he hadn't written some before, and so that was sort of, and that's of course where he goes to see her, and and there are some. Again, some physiological liberties that I take with with the corpses, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. and and it is a zombie romance, and and I, there is the comment in here: is it necrophilia if you're both dead? And people ask me that, <laughs> like I'm some sort of a zombie expert, uh, zombie sex expert, and and I think we've decided that it's not. One of you has to be alive for it to be necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, um. One of the things that this novel is very good at is bringing up some kind of prickly moral issues in a charming and kind of, you know, uh, it's not heavy-handed in any way, but it really, there's a lot of morality in here. And I'm wondering, could you talk about developing that morality? I mean, as you were writing this, did you think, wow, well, wait a second, is this right? Is this right? I mean, talk about uh, your inverted, you, you know, undead morality. Well, I, I think things just had... Everything in there had to stay true to what what a zombie. Obviously, you know, there's a morality of what's right and what's wrong, mm-hmm. and how just how a human is treated. Take away the whole discrimination aspect. You know, these his, his the way his parents treat him, the way his his friends ignore him. You know that because he's a zombie now, he's an untouchable. Mm. And so th- there are all those moral issues, but I don't think, and I'm not going to say I don't think. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I think I did not sit down with the intention of of creating any moral messages it just seemed to be a natural way of 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 explaining the rights and wrongs of of how people are treated without saying this is right and this is wrong you can just tell that this is the wrong way to treat somebody who even they used to be human you know and 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 they still have feelings like he says in there even though my heart stops beating it still aches you know, and even though they they can't feel physical pain, they can still get their feelings hurt. So they are still they they even though they're not technically humans, they have human qualities, and those aren't acknowledged by other people. And so, again, it, it wasn't something I set out to create some sort of a 
uh, a moral to or an allegory to anything. It just seemed to to make sense in, in the telling of the story. And when the zombies, the whole tension escalates as, as the book moves forward, it's it's still there. It just seems to be sort of natural in what makes sense. And to me, the ending makes sense within the concept, you know, that the the context of what could actually happen is suspending, you know, disbelief that, that this would actually, this scenario could actually exist. What would actually be realistic in terms of how this would all play out and what would, what would, would make absolutely no sense if you got to the end and said, well, that's ridiculous. So I didn't want to have it be ridiculous. It needed to make sense to me at the end. And so that's how everything played together. Well, you do a great job of <clears throat> engaging the reader's sympathy uh, for all these zombies. We really, we really, really like them, even at a point where maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, that's well, that, and again, that was that yeah, was one trick. of the that was the that was the trick, and and I have had some people read it, and and you know, not everybody, you know, that, that's the whole thing about reading is very subjective, and I understand that. Some people really love the ending, and some people really love the the direction the story took in the last third of it. Other people didn't like it; they thought it the they they preferred the story that was being told before then, but. Again, I didn't think it was realistic for that to actually, you know, the, the whole thing with zombie rights, you know, it's it's kind of tricky, you know, <laughs> is, especially, especially <laughs> if they start to do what everyone thinks they're supposed to do. And, you know, you, you kind of have to you have to draw the line somewhere when when mm. when a, a zombie is actually consuming a human as to whether or not they should actually get any rights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rights become more tricky when when uh, we're uh, when we're the prey. Yeah, when cannibalism comes into comes into the picture, you know, you have to to have a little bit of a of a of a line drawn. I think. Now, uh, are you work? Tell us what you're working on now. Are you working on another novel? I actually have finished my next novel, and it's been sold. Oh. Uh, it's actually been sold mm-hmm. to to Penguin Nal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a sequel, and it is not about zombies. I did not sit down and write this book and figure I was going to be a zombie author and, and write zombies for the rest of my life. I just had this this specific idea. But the next book is also a dark comedy, and it has a supernatural aspect to it. And uh, the title of the novel is Fated, F-A-T-E-D, and the main character in the novel is Fate. And so you get to see his perspective and the story that he tells told through his perspective and and just real briefly that I, I delineate between fate and destiny because some people may consider them the same thing but nobody is ever fated for greatness you're destined for greatness and it's not a destiny worse than death it's a fate worse than death so fate has a lot of negative connotations <laughs> and destiny does not so fate has to deal with all of the people who are Faded for either you know mediocrity or to be a second string quarterback or you know to be a one term president uh, you know the fate gets the knack and destiny gets the Beatles you know so <laughs> it's 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 like you know Michael Jordan is not faded Tiger Woods is not faded obviously these are just athletes but uh, you can even go on to you know Alfred Hitchcock directors multiple. Uh, award-winning uh, actors and actresses, Pulitzer Prize winners, none of those people are fated. They're destined. And the people that are destined for greatness are a lot fewer than the people who are fated for your general average Joes who make a lot of bad decisions throughout their lives. So fate has to deal with a lot more people than destiny. He has destiny envy, and 
he's not supposed to get involved and and affect the fates of his of his charges, but he starts to get involved in their lives because he's tired of watching them screw up all the time, and that leads to cosmic repercussions. He's also best friends with Sloth and Gluttony, and he's got a 500-year-old grudge with death. Karma's one of his best friends. Lady Luck makes an appearance, as do the other deadly sins and the seven contrary virtues and the seven heavenly virtues and the lesser sins and the subversives and the emotives and and the intangibles. So they're all personifications of, of these feelings and attributes and other aspects of life that happen to us on a daily basis, but instead they're actually being thrust upon us by these the immortal entities. This sounds like a lot of fun to research. It was. It was a lot of fun. I had to do a lot of research on history too, because mm. fate has been around since before the dawn of man. He had to you know take some classes to learn how to deal with man and humans. And you know, so I had to find out what, you know he had to make references to certain things that happened throughout history. And like, you know, th- this is easier than 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 this that happened before. I can't give you specific examples off the top of my head, but but he references you know like Julius Caesar, Moses, uh, all sorts of different characters and events throughout history. And so I had to make sure that I had that as well as you know the the, the, the how the population has has increased over the the centuries and millennia, and how that has affected his job. Uh, European colonialism, how that affected his job, you know, the the plagues and how that sort of lightened his workload, things like that. <laughs> now, it strikes me, talking about both your novels, you find it easier to talk about people by getting outside the human perspective. I have in the first two. Mm-hmm. My my agent actually mentioned to me, she said, and I hadn't thought about it, she said, I'm, I'm in my first two books, I've talked about the human condition from the perspective of somebody who's not human. Mm-hmm. And I didn't set out to do that. It just kind of happened. I don't think that my third novel is going to be the same thing, uh, but as not human. But there is going to be some sort of supernatural or science fiction or fantastic element to it. I, I'm already working on it, but I don't think it's going to be a a non-human that is going to be giving the perspective. But definitely, there will be some some aspects to it that are, uh, like I said, fantastic. Uh, could you talk about, you know, you're a writer of the fantastic. Could you talk about that as a like a literary tool for you? Well, I don't. Sometimes people will ask me about literary tools and literary devices, and I'll I'll be honest. I I you know I I did not study literature in school. I don't know how to use literary devices. I may if I use them, it's just because it just happened. And, and it works for the way I write. I don't think I'm going to use this literary device in here. Mm. I have not studied it. I, I know, I couldn't tell you the definition of a gerund, but I know how to use it. Mm. So there are a lot of aspects to my writing that are just simply, it's just, it's just the story that's coming out of me and the story that I want to tell. And, and fortunately, the way that I'm telling it and, and, and the, the, the medium I'm choosing to use seems to, seems to work, or at least it has so far. Um, but in terms of, of what was the question you asked again? <laughs> <laughs> Literary toolkits. Literary toolkits. Um, I don't I don't use any specific tools that that your you know literary greats might know how to use. Mm. Uh, definitely, um, I, I I admire somebody who who can do that, but it's it's not necessarily the way that that I craft a story. And, you know, some people will say, well, that's obvious. (laughs) (laughs) 
I've been speaking with Scott Brown as S.G. Brown. His first novel is Breathers, A Zombie's Lament. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.